Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Let's start with the weather forecast from KCRG. Mainly quiet weather until potential storm system early next week. A mainly quieter weather pattern doesn't last forever, with the second week of the new year looking potentially more active. Clouds overnight kept things a little warmer for a start, with temperatures in the low 30s for most of us and wind chills in the low to mid-20s. For the most part, clouds hang around for many, though a patch of clearing in central Iowa early this morning could shift east and provide at least some glimpse of bluer skies for a little while this morning. More clouds arrive as the day goes on, and a cold front sweeping through later today. The front provides little in the way of precipitation other than a flurry or two at times, though impacts remain low. Temperatures today only warm a degree or three toward the mid-30s this afternoon. Skies could clear a little bit overnight as an area of high pressure moves in, with the potential for scattered clearing on Thursday as well. The cold front that moves through today will give a reinforcing shot of cold air leaving highs for the rest of the work week and school week in the low to mid-30s at best. Overnight lows could hit the upper 10s to low 20s as well. A storm system largely passes to our south this weekend, tracking through the mid-south and up toward the New England states. A secondary disturbance tracks to our north, which could give us a few snow showers on Saturday night. Impacts from this system will generally be low. Highs this weekend will be in the mid to upper 30s, with lows in the mid-20s. Early next week is where a lot of our attention is, with the potential for a more significant storm system to trek across the central United States. This will come in the form of an area of low pressure that will develop on the southern plains, tracking through the Ozarks and up through the Great Lakes region. A good amount of moisture will be drawn in from the Gulf of Mexico, likely leading to a wide area of precipitation. On the back side of this low, precipitation should fall as rain-snow mix or all-snow. Eastern Iowa should be on the colder side of this system based on the latest information and data we have. However, this system is still several days away. Details are next to impossible to pin down at this time range for a winter storm system, and any attempts to do so this far out aren't really very reliable. The track of the system will be critical, and the computer models we use to help make our forecasts are far from agreement on that track. A generally active weather pattern continues into the rest of the nine-day forecast beyond this storm system, with another shot at some light snow potentially arriving by next Thursday. Temperatures should also fall a decent amount by the middle and end of next week, with some below-normal readings possible. Let's turn to the front page of The Courier now. We have the story, Republican Presidential Candidates Planned Competing Media Events Days Before Iowa Caucuses. This was filed by Caleb McCullough, Dateline Des Moines. Republican Presidential Candidates will participate in clashing Iowa media events next week as each seeks to command the spotlight 
in the final sprint before the caucuses, a trio of events featuring the four top polling Republican candidates are all scheduled for January 10th at 8 p.m. Iowa's Republican caucuses will be held on January 15th. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will participate in the CNN debate, which the network announced last month, at Drake University. To participate in the CNN debate, a candidate had to receive at least 10% in three national and or Iowa polls, limiting participation to DeSantis, Haley, and former President Donald Trump. But Trump, who leads the field in polling, will skip the debate and instead participate in a live Fox News town hall from Des Moines, which will air at the same time. The town hall will be moderated by Fox News anchors Brett Bayer and Martha McCollum, the network announced on Tuesday. Also in Des Moines at the same time, Ohio biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who failed to qualify for the CNN debate, will participate in a live town hall with conservative podcast host Tim Poole. Haley and DeSantis call on Trump to debate. Haley and DeSantis criticized Trump's refusal to participate in the CNN debate, which will likely be the last time candidates face off head-to-head before the caucuses on January 15th. Quote, with only three candidates qualifying, it's time for Donald Trump to show up, Haley said in a statement on Tuesday. As the debate stage continues to shrink, it's getting harder for Donald Trump to hide. DeSantis campaign spokesperson Andrew Romeo blasted Trump for skipping the debate and said he must defend his policies while president. Quote, We understand Donald Trump is scared to get on the stage because he'd have to finally explain why he didn't build the wall, added nearly $8 trillion to the debt, and turned the country over to Fauci, Romeo said. Quote, But even Gavin Newsom had courage to stand on the stage to debate his own failed record against Ron DeSantis. If it would make the debate more inviting, we would gladly agree to make it a seated format where the former president would be more comfortable, unquote. Trump has skipped the last four GOP primary debates, arguing his dominance in polling means he does not need to debate his opponents. In a statement last month, Trump campaign spokesperson Stephen Chung said Trump is, quote, dominating every single poll by historic margins. When asked if he would participate in the CNN debate, quote, these other candidates are currently sitting at the kids' table, wishing they could graduate to the adult table, Chung said. In a statement on Tuesday, Ramaswamy's campaign called CNN a ratings wasteland and accused the network of being biased against Ramaswamy. The campaign announced Ramaswamy would participate in a live audience town hall hosted by Tim Poole, a podcast host whose channel, Timcast IRL, has 1.6 million subscribers on YouTube. Poole's podcast will be hosted live in studio in Des Moines from January 10th to January 15th, Ramaswamy's campaign said. Quote, forget CNN's fake Iowa debate on January 10th, which will be the most boring in modern history. Ramaswamy said on social media Tuesday, 
were doing a live audience show that night in Des Moines with Tim Pool instead. Won't hold back. Next in the story that comes from the Associated Press, Trump appeals Maine officials' ballot ruling. Ex-president's lawyers argue clause doesn't apply to U.S. top office. Portland, Maine. Former President Donald Trump on Tuesday appealed a ruling by Maine's Secretary of State barring him from the state's primary ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The 2024 Republican front-runner appealed the decision by Maine Democrat Sheena Bellows, the first Secretary of State, to bar someone from running for presidency under the 14th Amendment's Section 3, which prohibits those who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office. Trump's lawyers argue the provision isn't intended to apply to the president, and the oath for the nation's top office isn't to support the Constitution, but to preserve, protect, and defend it. The appeal to a Maine Superior Court asks that Bellows be required to place him on the January 5th primary ballot. Trump is expected to appeal a similar ban in Colorado to the U.S. Supreme Court. Separately, a liberal activist asked a Pennsylvania court Tuesday to bar U.S. Representative Scott Perry, a Republican from Pennsylvania, from the state's primary ballot, arguing Perry isn't eligible under the same provision because of his efforts to keep Trump in office after his 2020 election loss. Next, in local news from The Courier, we have an article written by Melody Parker. Caitlin Tongland, extroverted leader, shares servant heart through work and volunteering. Dateline Waterloo. Orange is the color that best describes Caitlin Tongland's style in a true colors leadership assessment. Quote, I'm very definitely orange. I'm extroverted, and I'm the one who always says, go for it. I thrive being around people and like-minded people, said Tugland, 34, as regional director for junior achievement of Eastern Iowa. Her goal is to, quote, prepare and inspire future leaders. Tungland has been named one of the Courier's 20 under 40 recipients. She joined JA nine years ago, and two years ago was promoted to regional director, overseeing about 75 board members, raising funds for JA, and managing a $1.9 to $2.5 million annual budget. Her region includes the Cedar Valley and Cedar Rapids, Iowa City corridor. The organization is dedicated to providing young people the knowledge and skills needed for economic success, to plan for their futures, and make smart academic and economic choices. Core content includes financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and work readiness. Quote, we provide programs to about 40,000 school children each year in our region. In the Cedar Valley, 17,000 to 18,000 students in kindergarten through ninth grade get JA every day. Our mission is to be a solution provider for the school district, and we keep up with school curriculum mandates, not just to be good-to-have program, Tungland explained. JA uses volunteers 
including business people, college students, retirees, and others, in classrooms to teach and motivate children. Tonglin herself serves as a classroom volunteer among the roughly 1,400 volunteers. Quote, that's our post-COVID number, she said. We used to have 70% retention, but COVID changed work dynamics, created hybrid jobs, and leaner staffs. We're working hard to get our numbers back, unquote. J.A., quote, has invested in me. They've empowered me to get involved as part of my job, said Tungland, who grew up in Hudson, graduating from Hudson High School before attending the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. She graduated with a communications degree in 2012. Originally, Tungland had a different future in mind. Quote, I wanted a career as a mammal trainer, so I started out at Iowa State University majoring in animal ecology. I did an internship training dolphins in Key Largo, Florida, unquote. Although life took her in a different direction, she has a small dolphin tattoo on her ankle as a souvenir. After graduation, Tungland went to work at Target Distribution Center. When a co-worker told her about junior achievement, she became a classroom volunteer. Quote, J.A. provides the training and curriculum and encourages volunteers to share their own personal and professional stories that resonate with students, she said. Quote, Caitlin has a servant heart, said Cardinal Construction CEO Caddy Song, one of Tuglin's nominators. Quote, Outside of the meaningful work she's doing through J.A., she has been a Grove Cedar Valley ambassador since July 2018 and is a Cedar Valley Leadership Institute graduate of 2017. She was part of the Waterloo Rotary Club for seven years, serving as secretary, vice president, and president. At that time, she was the youngest Rotarian club president that club has ever had, Susong said. Jennifer Seach of Waverly also nominated Tugland. Quote, I have been fortunate to get to know Caitlin over the past five years through the Grow Cedar Valley Ambassadors. I have enjoyed watching her learn her role with the Ambassadors and dive into welcome new businesses and help them however she can. Quote, she is genuine, kind-hearted, and a true ambassador for the Cedar Valley, Seach wrote in her nomination. As regional director, Tugland spends several days each week working in Cedar Rapids and Iowa City. In 2024, she will graduate from the leadership of the Five Seasons program. Tugland loves getting out in nature with her husband, Alex, and their daughters, Raylin, Tu, and Jocelyn, Five. She volunteers at Cedar Heights Elementary School and for Blackhawk County YMCA T-Ball and soccer programs. Tungland also is a long-distance runner with two marathons and about two dozen half-marathons under her belt. She co-chaired the My Waterloo Days 5K last year and belongs to the Runners Flat Run Club and the Trail Sisters Running Club. Quote, I'm very much a social runner. I love the empowerment that running gives me. I don't look like someone who runs distances, works 40 or more hours a week, and is a mom. I embrace that, she said with a laugh. Ultimately, Tungland wants to mentor others as she was mentored by people like Susong. 
Quote, I want to bring heart and passion to whatever I do. I get involved in things that I'm passionate about. Whatever is on my plate, I take pride in giving my all to those opportunities. There are no halfway measures with me, Tongland added. Man arrested for allegedly selling an SUV that didn't belong to him. Story written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly selling a vehicle that wasn't his. Police pulled over a 2010 Ford Escape that had been reported stolen in December. People in the Escape said they purchased the vehicle from their neighbor in November and showed police a bill of sale they received. Officers interviewed the neighbor, who said the vehicle belonged to a female acquaintance, and she left it at the apartment complex where he lived. The neighbor told police he got tired of seeing the vehicle in the parking lot and sold it, telling the buyers it was his, according to court records. Officers arrested Dale Wesley Ulfers, 48, for second-degree theft on December 26th. He was released from jail pending trial. Police investigate New Year's morning hit-and-run crash into Waterloo home. Story filed by Andy Malone. Dateline, Waterloo. Police are investigating a hit-and-run crash into a home during the early morning hours of New Year's Day. Officers found a damaged silver 2013 Kia Optima at about 2.30 a.m. Monday outside 307 Oneida Street, where it seemingly ripped through a fence and bashed into the front of a tan single-family home, causing significant damage to the cinder block exterior. No injuries were reported, nor were any arrests immediately made. Police said the driver was not found on the scene, and the registered owner of the vehicle was uncooperative. The officer said the Kia, with damage to its front, looked to have taken a turn too fast and also hit a parked white semi-truck and silver BMW during the course of the events. Waterloo Fire Rescue also assisted on the call. The single-family home, sitting at the corner of North Barclay and Oneida Streets, adjacent to the Antioch Baptist Church, is owned by Our Family LLC, according to property records. The church had sold the home, built in 1927, to the current owner in March, the records state. Cedar Falls woman arrested Monday for damaging apartment building. Dateline Cedar Falls. A Cedar Falls woman has been arrested for allegedly damaging an apartment building on Monday morning. Residents at 803 West 20th Street called police around 9.20 a.m. after the woman pulled rocks from a nearby wall and punched a hole in a hallway wall. She allegedly told residents her children were in the wall. Officers didn't see any children in the walls, according to police report. Damage was estimated at more than $2,000. The woman identified as 39-year-old Caitlin Ray Fabro, allegedly struggled with police and was arrested for second-degree criminal mischief and interference. Court records said she has no connections to the apartment building. Fabro was also arrested for making a false report on December 21st for allegedly calling 911 multiple times to make a false kidnapping report. 
She is also awaiting trial for burglary for a December 2nd incident where she allegedly tried to pry open the back door of a home on West 3rd Street with a crowbar. (laughs) Developer unexpectedly pulls out of project to repurpose the old Kmart. Maria Cooper wrote the story, and the dateline is Waterloo. It's back to the drawing board for the city on what to do with the old Kmart. The former store at 3810 University Avenue closed in 2017. Plans were to convert it to a climate-controlled storage facility. Those plans fell through to the surprise of Noel Anderson, Waterloo's Community Planning and Development Director. Anderson said he learned that Man Road Storage LLC of Mount Vernon pulled out of the project when another party interested in purchasing the building called him in October. The Planning and Zoning Commission approved its permit last December. Quote, a different party called us about the site, and they started talking about some projects, he said. That was how we found out the other project was not moving ahead, unquote. He said Man Road Storage did not return phone calls. Representatives with the company did not respond to the courier's request for comment. That building would have been turned into a storage facility called Store Local Co-op, which would be a cooperative of self-storage owners and operators. Two store local co-ops are located in Cedar Rapids. The project would have been an investment of $18 million. Anderson said two other parties have expressed interest in the old Kmart. One hopes to turn it into some sort of retail center, while the intentions of the other are unknown. Any new development to the property must be approved by the Planning and Zoning Commission and by the City Council. In high school boys basketball, Cedar Falls Tops East kicks off 2024 with a win. Dateline Cedar Falls. The Cedar Falls Tigers managed an 86-38 home win over Waterloo East in Tuesday night's boys basketball action. Senior forward Cade Corbett, who finished second on Cedar Falls with 10 points in the win, said it was good to start off 2024 on the right foot and improve to 5-1 and one overall. Quote, last game was a little rough against Western Dubuque, Corbett said. We came up with a win, but we were not proud of how we played. We just needed to get things going again, play the way we like to play basketball, get everyone involved. We did a great job of doing that tonight. We have a couple tough ones coming up, so we have to keep on bringing that to the next few games, unquote. Although Cedar Falls ultimately came out on top, it was the Trojans who initially pulled in front, taking a 7-2 lead early on. Cedar Falls head coach Ryan Schultz elected to go for a full lineup change midway through the first quarter, which proved to be the difference in igniting the stagnant Tigers' offense. The platoon of Willem Gerdes, Logan Rowe, Jordan Townsend, Jaden Kimbrough, and Keegan Stege sparked a 14-0 run, powered by six points from Gerdes, to put the Tigers in front 16-7 before the end of the frame. According to Corbett, the slow start offensively did not demonstrate Cedar Falls' normal capabilities. 
but it did allow the Tigers to flex their depth. Quote, coming back, it was a new game, Corbett said. Everyone is a little amped, maybe a little nervous coming back. We have not played in a while, but we can come out better than that. I know Coach was not happy with how we were playing initially. Quote, but we have so much depth on this team that if we have those rocky starts, I know we can trust everyone on this team to come in and help us out. So we are not too worried about those starts because we have so much depth, unquote. Cedar Falls finished the first quarter with a 19-12 lead, outscoring East 15-5 after the Trojans took their initial 7-2 lead. The Tigers rolled that momentum into a dominant second quarter, limiting the Trojans to just six points and scoring 24 themselves. Corbett credited Schultz's defensive game plan for the Tigers' ability to hold East to 3 of 10 from the field in the second quarter. Quote, Coach did a good job of making sure he told us what our jobs was supposed to be and what we were actually supposed to do tonight, Corbett said. We know how good of a defensive team we can be, and we can really lock anybody down. He did a good job of emphasizing that and making sure we, shutting the guys down, that we needed to shut down, unquote. The Tigers outscored the Trojans 43-20 to in the second half to steal the win and kick off 2024 with a win. Now, in high school girls wrestling, Cedar Falls takes team title Don Bosco's Irvine win at Osage. Dateline is Osage. Behind three runner-up finishes and 12 overall top six finishes, Cedar Falls captured the 21-team Osage Invitational Tuesday in girls wrestling action. Natalie Blake at 100, Lauren Witt at 110, and Annabelle Rohret at 115 all finished second for the Tigers, while Macy Graves at 155 and Briar Ludeman at 190 each took third. Blake lost a hard-fought 2-1 decision to Bettendorf's Olivia Hernandez in the finals, while Witt lost a 3-0 match to Osage's Gable Herman. Rowett was pinned by Bettendorf's Taylor Strife in the 115 final. Don Bosco freshman Erica Irvine ranked number one in the state at 105, beat number two Layla Phillips of Mason City 6-0 in the 105 championship match. Cedar Falls also got a fifth-place finish from Elizabeth Mills at 170 and Anna Johnson at 140, while April Halzer at 120 and Destiny Hopner at 135 both were sixth. Waterloo National Guard Unit deploys to Kosovo after Friday morning send-off. Dateline Waterloo. A lone bagpiper greeted visitors to the Waterloo Airport Army Aviation Support Facility on Friday morning, his solemn skirl matching the mood of those gathering at the site. In support of a NATO peacekeeping operation, a portion of the Battalion of Iowa National Guard soldiers is deploying to Kosovo for a nine-month tour. 
33 members of Detachment 1, Company C, 2 to 11th General Support Aviation Battalion, based in Waterloo, departed following a community send-off ceremony held at the support facility on Big Rock Road. According to a news release, quote, their primary mission will be to conduct live aerial medevac operations, refueling and maintenance support to U.S. coalition and Kosovo security forces. The peacekeeping mission is focused on local and regional stability within the country and Eastern Europe. NATO has been leading a peacekeeping operation in Kosovo since June of 1999. Those being deployed, 30 men and 3 women, will spend a month completing pre-mobilization training at Fort Kosovo's at Army Post near Kailin, Texas, before heading to Kosovo. The last time the unit deployed was in 2017 to Afghanistan. 18-month-old Emery Graham sat on a folding chair munching fruit, oblivious to the fact that her father, Dwayne Graham, was preparing to leave. Her mom, Mariah Graham, tried to hold back tears as she kept her daughter occupied. Quote, My husband has been on two previous deployments, but this is the first one for me, she said. It doesn't feel great. Mariah said her husband has prepared her to the best of his ability. Quote, We've had a lot of conversations, she said. My family is my support system, and my job has been really great. Alongside military dignitaries, Waterloo Mayor Quinton Hart addressed those in attendance. Quote, this is one of the most humbling opportunities of my life as the son of an Army veteran who passed away almost exactly a year ago, he said. He thanked unit members for their service, dedication, bravery, and sacrifice, and quoted the seventh beatitude, quote, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, unquote. Quote, when you go, you are not alone, Hart said citing the support of those who have previously served, neighbors, and family members. The city of Cedar Falls was represented by council member Gil Schultz. Lindsay Fuller of Waverly was on hand to see the unit off. A member of the 186 MP Company, she and her unit will be deployed to Kosovo next week. Quote, I'm just here to support this unit today, she said. Our missions are different. They will be doing aviation, and we will be doing law enforcement, unquote. And now, listeners, we remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 3rd, on IRIS, I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, let's listen to this public service announcement. It only took Jeff one interview to land his job, one smile to get his wife to go out with him, and one time to risk it all by trying meth. Meth. Never, ever. Visit YourLifeIowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Our first editorial was printed in the New York Times, titled, Judge Blocks Iowa's Ban on School Library Books that Depict Sex Acts. Authors and activists said the Republican-backed law infringed on free speech, 
The judge said the ban imposed a puritanical pall of orthodoxy over school librarians, unquote. A federal judge in Iowa temporarily blocked on Friday the enforcement of a law backed by Republicans that banned books describing sex acts from public school libraries. In granting the preliminary injunction, Judge Stephen Locker said that the law, quote, makes no attempt to target such books in any reasonable way, unquote. Quote, instead, it requires the wholesale removal of every book containing a description or visual depiction of a sex act, regardless of context, the judge wrote. The underlying message is that there is no redeeming value to any such book, even if it is a work of history, self-help guide, award-winning novel, or other piece of serious literature. In effect, the legislature has imposed a puritanical pall of orthodoxy over school libraries, unquote. The publisher Penguin Random House and best-selling authors John Green and Jody Picoult were among the plaintiffs who challenged the measure on free speech grounds. Judge Locker, who was appointed by President Biden to the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Iowa, also blocked a portion of the law that imposed limits on instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity before the seventh grade. The judge let stand a rule requiring schools to notify parents when a student asks to be called by a new pronoun. The fight over the Iowa law is part of a broader national debate over how sexuality should be discussed in schools. Like conservatives elsewhere, Iowa Republicans brushed off concerns about free expression and said the restrictions safeguarded students from harmful materials. Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement on Friday that she was extremely disappointed in the ruling and that there should be no question that books containing sexually explicit content as clearly defined in Iowa law, do not belong in a school library for children, unquote. Quote, the real debate should be about why society is so intent on over-sexualizing our young children, Ms. Reynolds added. Quote, it's wrong, and I will continue to do my part to protect their innocence, unquote. Since the Republican governor signed the bill into law in May, Iowa school districts have had to assess what selections in their libraries might violate the new rule, which allows for passing references to sex but bans anything that describes or depicts a sexual act. Republicans nationally have emphasized their objections to a handful of titles, including some about LGBTQ people, that contain graphic descriptions of sex. But many other books, including highly regarded ones that are not primarily about sex, were swept up in the Iowa crackdown. The school system in the city of Nevada, Iowa, removed dozens of well-known titles from its shelves, including 1984 by George Orwell, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, Looking for Alaska by Mr. Green, and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Quote, you have people yanking books off because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs, said Frederick Sperling, a lawyer for the publisher and authors 
in oral arguments last week at the federal courthouse in Des Moines. In court, Daniel Johnston, a lawyer for the state attorney general's office, said it seemed some school districts had removed books not actually banned by the law, but he declined to wade into the compliance of specific titles. When Judge Locker quizzed him about whether some award-winning literature or nonfiction books that described sexual violence would be banned under the law, Mr. Johnston responded that it would depend on whether there was a description of a sex act. As another example, the judge asked about hypothetical history books describing allegations of sexual misconduct against a president or presidential candidate. It would depend on how specific that description was, Mr. Johnston said. Judge Locker said in court that the legislation was, quote, one of the most bizarre laws I've ever read, unquote. But he pressed plaintiffs' lawyers about when the government might have an interest in regulating school books and about why they thought the judiciary should override the wishes of lawmakers. While the lawsuit filed by the publisher and authors focused on the part of the law restricting books, another case filed on behalf of LGBTQ students and their parents and advocates asked the judge to block enforcement of the entire measure. The passage of the law, known as Senate File 496, further demonstrated the rightward shift of Iowa politics. Iowa was once a swing state known for relatively moderate politics. Barack Obama carried the state twice. But Republicans have dominated at the ballot box over the last decade and now hold large legislative majorities. In 2023 alone, Ms. Reynolds signed laws to restrict abortion, ban transition medical care for children, and limit the powers of the state auditor, who is the only elected Democrat still holding a statewide office. Now from the Des Moines Register, nursing home problems in Iowa require public investigation. This was written by the Register's editorial staff. Plenty is worth discussing about how Iowa's 400-plus nursing homes are operated, staffed, and regulated. That can be true even if you don't agree with every concern critics have raised over the years about workers and administrators and regulators. Iowa Senate Republican leadership and Governor Kim Reynolds' office, in other words, could have said yes to Democratic State Senator Claire Selsey's request this month for a government oversight committee hearing on nursing homes without adopting her framing of the need. Instead, Senate President Amy Sinclair chose a quick, nothing-to-see-here dismissal of Selsey's letter. That didn't serve any Iowans, not the people who depend on homes for day-to-day care, the families who expect competent care for their loved ones, or the workers who deserve the resources required to do their difficult jobs. Formal legislative oversight should have been the starting point, and Sinclair or Republican colleagues in the House can still make that happen. Whatever the form, though, a task force ordered by Reynolds, perhaps, Iowa nursing homes' problems deserve focused attention, and now. Complaint about Biden's staffing rule could have been part of a hearing. Among the biggest challenges for nursing homes is attracting and retaining 
qualified staff. Reynolds and colleagues have been vocal about this in the context of a proposed Biden administration rule requiring certain staffing ratios, saying that setting staffing standards in this labor environment is counterproductive. Great. Talk about that. But more broadly, talk about what levers could be pressed in state government, at community colleges, and in more local ways to help increase employment in caregiving, systemic issues, and individual tragedies. Both should be unacceptable. Staffing is not, of course, the only thing. Celsi's letter noted news reports documenting numerous alarming incidents throughout the state. Three of those incidents are listed here. Some nursing homes in recent years went as long as 41 months between inspections, which are supposed to be conducted annually, according to Iowa Capital Dispatch. The U.S. Senate Committee on Aging says that Iowa is the 49th in the country for the number of nursing home inspectors per capita. Also, two winters ago, residents in Bondurant and Spirit Lake left their homes, both managed by the same company, and froze to death. One case led to a criminal conviction for a nursing assistant. And state inspectors said a Western Iowa facility responded to a resident's accusation that a staff member sexually abused her by immediately evicting the woman and taking her to a homeless shelter. Every incident like that one is independently alarming, and the accumulation of distressing stories makes it impossible to dismiss them as aberrations. Even the more mundane stories reflect unacceptable conditions. Residents not receiving their medication, requests for assistance going unanswered for hours, routine medical care not being available on site. The collaborative approach doesn't seem to be working. As in other arenas involving interactions with vulnerable populations, especially medical care, small errors in nursing home care can have life-or-death consequences. Mistakes need not be malicious or have disastrous results. Frequent inspections to uphold strict standards are a sensible tool to manage mistakes and prevent recurrence. Tens of thousands of dollars of campaign contributions connected to the nursing home industry go to the governor and the legislators, Iowa Capital Dispatch has reported. Reynolds, Republican lawmakers, and industry officials often deliver a party line that the best way to limit errors in homes is to foster a collaborative relationship between nursing homes and the government, focused on securing resources rather than an adversarial regulatory relationship. They seem to achieve this goal in Iowa. Working collaboratively has evolved into looking the other way. The outcome is the conditions that prompted the Democrats' oversight demand in the first place. A series of oversight hearings could productively explore many critical issues regarding long-term care in Iowa. The COVID pandemic laid bare some of the risks involved with congregating large numbers of vulnerable Iowans in the same living quarters. And in survey after survey, older Americans say they would prefer to stay in their homes as they age rather than move into group care. Is Iowa doing enough to encourage and support at-home care?
But at minimum, the governor and the legislative leaders must not ignore the drumbeat of reports of neglect and outright abuse of nursing home residents across our state. They should order a public review of these incidents and the difficulties with nursing home care. They can focus on federal regulation and work for struggles if they wish, but soberly considering cases where Iowans have suffered and how to stop them from recurring must be a prominent part of the discussion, too. Now, from the Storm Lake Times pilot, an editorial written by Randy Evans, he writes a column called Stray Thoughts. The topic today is an issue that hasn't been unfurled yet in Iowa. We Iowans apparently have been kidding ourselves. Somehow, as we focus on taxes, water quality, and allegations of big government overreach, as we wrestle with immigration, inflation, drug abuse, school choice, and women's reproductive freedom, and as we contemplate transgender issues, academic freedom, religious rights, and free speech on college campuses, Iowa has missed another issue, one that appears to be gaining momentum and controversy in some states. The surprising topic of the debate? State flags. Earlier in December, after sifting through hundreds of proposed designs and digesting countless comments, a special state commission in Minnesota settled on a new design for that state's flag. Unless the Minnesota legislature vetoes the new design, it automatically becomes official flagpole banner for our neighbors to the north on April 1st. The new design is intended to correct what some people in Minnesota see as flaws with the current flag, a design that critics believe is too complicated and too offensive, especially for indigenous people. The flag includes the state seal, which, like many states' seals, is chock full of symbolic doodads and images. Especially irksome, in the eyes of some critics, is that the Minnesota seal depicts a Native American riding off into the sunset while a white settler remains to plow fields. The new design has a dark blue angular graphic element that advocates say is a stylized depiction of Minnesota's shape. There is a white eight-point star that represents the North Star, a nod to Minnesota's state motto, Star of the North. Before you jump to the conclusion, this must be some wacky idea cooked up by out-of-control progressives in the land of loons and walleyes. I need to remind you what happened last winter in Utah, which is much redder than Minnesota. Utah's legislature approved a simpler design for the state flag. It features Utah's beehive symbol and a graphic depiction of the state's mountains. The old flag had the beehive too, but it also had an eagle crossed American flags, and a couple of dates, just what you would expect from an industrial bunch of flag designers a century ago. The fever to redesign flags has spread beyond Minnesota and Utah. In 2020, Mississippi voters approved a new flag that features the Magnolia instead of the controversial Confederate theme. In 2024, Illinois, Maine, and Michigan are expected to decide whether to replace their flags 
with new designs, too. More people pay attention to state flags than just knobby-headed opinion columnists. The North American Vixological Association, an organization of flag fanatics, conducted a survey in 2001 that rates the state, territorial, and provincial flags of the United States and Canada. Iowa's flag finished 42nd out of 72 flags. Minnesota's flag finished 6th from the last in the survey. Lee Harold, who owns Harold Flags in Rochester, Minnesota, told the Minnesota Post, quote, A lot of people don't know we have a flag. It's not a good situation when you live in a state and you don't even know what your own state flag looks like, unquote. Kevin Jenswald, the chair of the Upper Sioux community in Minnesota, told the Post the state flag is not displayed on many tribal lands there because of the way it depicts indigenous people. Some states, like Minnesota, have had lots of practice in designing and modifying their state flags. Minnesota's first flag was adopted in 1893. The design was revived in 1957 and again in 1983. Iowa has not been so fidgety over its flag. Although there was no official state banner for 75 years after statehood, the legislature in 1921 finally adopted the design by Dixie Gebhardt of Knoxville. The absence of any organized effort to rework her handiwork has not stopped some vexillologists from doing so-what-if designing. I salute them for their creativity, but Iowans already have enough on our plates of political issues to keep us occupied. Now we have an editorial piece written by Steve Corbin, who is a professor emeritus of marketing at the University of Northern Iowa. This appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot. The Hypocrisy of Donald Trump's Witch Hunt Claim Donald Trump has recently been crying wolf by declaring America's legal system is a witch hunt against him. Trump claims the New York, Georgia, Florida, and District of Columbia court cases, with 91 felony charges, are politically motivated to restrict his ability to run for president in 2024. Anyone with a modicum of intelligence would realize the hypocrisy of Mr. Trump's current ploy if they knew he never once declared witch hunt in the 62 lawsuits he filed and lost while contesting the 2020 election. Note, Trump-appointed judges were among the 80-plus magistrates who dismissed his election fraud lawsuits. Let's not forget nine jurors, six males and three females, and not the judge, awarded E. Jean Carroll $5 million because of Mr. Trump's sexual abuse and defamation, a fact-driven versus witch-hunt verdict. A federal judge ruled the ex-president's comments about Ms. Carroll were libelous. A second trial, Carroll versus Trump, is set to start January 15th, the day of the Iowa GOP caucus. MAGA-Trumpers probably haven't let it sink in that Judge Arthur Ergeron of New York's Supreme Court First Judicial District already ruled that Donald, his sons, and the Trump Organization repeatedly committed fraud during the last decade, again 
a fact-driven versus a witch-hunt decision. Furthermore, Mr. Trump never once, to the best of my knowledge, cried wolf or uttered witch-hunt in the 4,000-plus lawsuits that's encompassed his life. Arizona Central USA Today notes Mr. Trump has been the plaintiff 2,121 times and 1,929 times as defendant. And let's remember Donald Trump has been accused of rape, sexual assault, and sexual harassment, including non-consensual kissing or groping, by at least 25 women since the 1970s. Here's a quick review. Thanks to a December 6th political report of the criminal cases currently before Mr. Trump that appeared to be the real deal versus a witch hunt. Number one, in Washington, D.C., four felony counts for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Number two, 13 felony counts for election interference in Georgia. And number three, in New York, 34 felony counts in connection with hush money payments to a porn star. And number four, in Florida, 40 felony counts for hoarding U.S. classified documents and impeding government's efforts to retrieve them as per law. Might Mr. Trump be crying witch hunt and his lawyers purposely throwing as many counter-arguments onto the court systems so the cases won't have a verdict until after the November 5, 2024 election? Of course. Trump's history of lifelong legal issues, starting at age 27, should cause any registered Republican, Independent, or Democrat with an ounce of brain matter to think a little more than once about whether a man like Mr. Trump is fit to lead the greatest country in the world and abide by the Constitution and laws. The words of Theodore Roosevelt are fitting, quote, No man is above the law, and no man is below it, nor do we ask any man's permission when we ask him to obey it. Note, Steve Corbin is Professor Emeritus of Marketing at the University of Northern Iowa. <laughs> Longtime Waterloo West coach Dr. Anthony W. Pappas in hospital after medical emergency. Dateline Waterloo. According to Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier sources, longtime Waterloo West girls basketball coach Dr. Anthony W. Pappas suffered a medical emergency Tuesday during practice at West High School. An ambulance was dispatched to the school at around 10 a.m. A source close to the situation confirmed in a statement that the ambulance was for Dr. Pappas, saying, quote, This morning, Dr. Pappas experienced a medical emergency at West High. He was able to be successfully taken to the hospital, where he is undergoing tests and treatment. Our thoughts and prayers are with Dr. Pappas and those that are caring for him, unquote. Waterloo Schools, after conferring with Pappas's family members, released this statement at 5.30 p.m. Quote, During practice at West High this morning, Dr. Pappas experienced a medical emergency and was taken to the hospital where he is currently undergoing medical treatment, stated Superintendent Dr. Jared Smith. Quote, Please hold Dr. Pappas in your thoughts as we await further information 
from his family, unquote. Papas, 69, and a native of Mason City, is one of the most successful girls basketball coaches in the state. He is in his 47th season, 44th with the Wahawks. He won his 650th game last winter and has a career record of 659 to 387. Pappas ranks 12th in all-time career coaching wins in the state of Iowa. Pappas has led West to 11 state tournaments, including the past four, and West has finished as state runner-up three times in his tenure. More than 70 former West High players have played collegiately. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 3rd. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just go to our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. 